1: acton acton welcome to we have ways of making talk with me James Holland and with Martin Davison and Martin returning again for part two we we were discussing mobilizing hate your book about about the Holocaust and in the first half we were talking about... The, the, the road to war, won't we? But but also the the road to the Holocaust, because it wasn't the Holocaust in the nineteen thirties when when the Nazis came to power. There was a massive strand, an absolute crucial key ideology was was anti-Semitism and the perceived need to get rid of the Jewish Bolshevik kind of cancer that was corrupting the Germanic races and and all that kind of nonsense and. We left it on that first episode with war just about to begin and that very warped ideology just starting to take a turn for a massive word.
0: Absolutely right. I think the, the, the first part was... Um, the more abstract of the two parts of the story. This was the account, because what I tried to do in the book is put the pieces together that will yep. help us understand what happened and why and who did it and what they got out of it.
1: Well, I think it's so important. I think it's so important because it's no, it's no good to just say they had this terrible um, um, ideology and so they enacted the Holocaust and the final solution. You know, that that's just not good enough. You have to understand how... It gets to that point. Yeah. And you have to understand, you know, look at, looking at uh, sort of you know massacres by German troops, and not necessarily SS troops, but sort of Wehrmacht troops, whether it be in the Eastern Front or whether it be in Europe, in fact, whether it's Lodici, um, yes. uh, I don't know, Orador or, or Montessori, you know, and so on, or, or Santana. Why is it that young 20-year-olds can calmly line up with their machine guns and just mow people down. I mean, how how has it come to that? And you have to understand the background. It's just not good enough to just say they're all evil Nazi bastards
0: no it's just circular i, I mean the, the the thing i tried to do is so what you in a funny way what happens with the war is this is a story bookended by world war it begins in the dying embers of world war 1 and the notion of defeat uh, and it will reach its apotheosis um in the second world war which was entirely set up as a reprise of the first that was the german the german intention that hitler had from the start is world war 1 is simply puts World War on pause. The whole yep. project that World War One was about is on pause. We will return to it. And this time we will make none of the mistakes that were allowed to be made the first time round. That's what Hitler meant when he said never again. And never again had a very crucial role ascribed to the Jews in that proposition, um, which we, we can talk a bit about. But what I would like to talk about, I think, in the second podcast is less because what we talked about in the first was my attempt to kind of get a, a handle on what the conceptual, I mean, it's a terrible use of the word. But what lay behind so much of this were ideas, ideas with a capital I. They made sense. That's what gave it its irresistible momentum was it made sense. It was a worldview that was appeared internally, completely coherent what the french philosophers call delirium thinking once you've got it in your head there's no there's no no opportunity to stand outside it
1: and look in gosh and, and the scary thing though martin is is you know we are seeing that delirium thinking rearing its head over and over and over ever since but particularly in the last 10 years
0: well, the world the world doesn't always respond in the in the most enlightened way to periods of tremendous economic insecurity, ethnic insecurity, global populations on the march, people feeling under threat. Uh, it's never it's yep. never a moment to expect the best of people, and we are seeing yes the guardrails that kept liberal politics and democracy and notions of human value and human worth uh, kind of safe. You know those guardrails are are being battered um, at the moment. There's no question, but the the really important I think point to be made for the, you know, this is a World War II podcast, after all, not a 30s podcast. For this story, if part one, uh, uh, the first half of my book is about how it was that the Germans, and particularly the Nazis, established to their own malign, malevolent satisfaction the idea that there was a Jewish question and it was one that needed solving, the war is in is 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 indissoluble from, is synonymous with their concerted drive to solve it. So if yep. the war, World War II is undoubtedly part of the story of World War II, um, and this is not noises off, it's not peripheral, it's not some marginal thing, you know, while the big tank battles are happening, all this horror is happening in the camps, and it's somehow you can subtract that from your picture of the war if it makes you uncomfortable. You can't, you can't. World War II, as the Germans conceived it, had the Holocaust or something like it at the heart of what, how it conceived the war that it was fighting and why. And the key date, the key date is um, is June 22nd, 1941. It's Barbarossa. And Barbarossa, um, I know it's been a brilliantly analysed subject, utterly illuminatingly detailed and unpacked in, in, in previous podcasts that you and Al have had, particularly with David Starhall. I mean, brilliantly, brilliantly done. But this is the story. And it's really, really important to, ha- to understand what happens. And the way I try to understand it, not as a specific military, Historian, which I'm not. But if you look at if take a step back and understand what is, first of all, I think the thing you have to understand about June the 22nd barbarossa is why does Hitler do it? And it is Hitler. Entirely, this is an expression of Hitler's view about what the war is and what the war will deliver him. Um, and the really important thing to, to understand, I think, is it's a combination in his mind of what he has learnt from France and Poland, the two big campaigns that have led to this day. So France is the astonishing victory against all the odds. Even he thought originally this was going to take four years and it didn't. So after six weeks, um, as Ian Kershaw will tell you, this is the moment where Hitler becomes genuinely megalomaniac. This is the point where he believes his own myth. Up till now, he and Goebbels have manufactured the, the Fuhrer image and there's an sort of element of cynicism about it, but not anymore. Germany is unstoppable. That is the lesson. And he in particular, as a war leader, is unstoppable. But, but Poland is the darker of the two lessons, because what Poland proves is that there is no German war, no German victory. And most importantly, no German empire after victory that does not include the deliberately targeted obliteration of specific categories of people. And the thing I'd really like to make very clear from the top, yes, this is a book about the final solution. Yes, this is a book whose principal starring role is played by the European Jews of the victims of, of Nazi extermination. But it's really important, and it's, it's a brilliant historian called Alex Kay, uh, uh, who's written a book called The Empire of Destruction, which I cannot recommend enough. And he makes the very cogent point that you have to understand that 80% of the civilian deaths, civilian non-combatant deaths in World War II uh, were perpetrated by the Germans, most of them by the Wehrmacht.
1: And the generals all buy into it. And there are a few examples of, of a handful, a very, very small handful of senior commanders who do not do it and and That's you know right. just you think
0: not a lot happens to them no no i know i know it's just kind of really appalling but what 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 he what he what he outlines is that and it's it's a really cogent sobering point there are seven you can break it down to seven categories of people who the germans target for deliberate and the important thing is none of these people are collateral damage there is a lot of collateral damage in the war, people killed in bombing right. raids, um, who weren't necessarily targeted, but um, their death were, they, they were baked in, it was the price of doing war. These are not collateral damage. These are targeted for physical obliteration, because they are synonymous with the German strategy of what their vision for the war requires these people to be targeted. And they include uh, 300,000 people who are mentally and physically handicapped across Germany and Eastern territories. 100,000 of what you might call the Polish ruling class and the elites, 200,000 European Roma, 2
1: million, Soviet city dwellers. Why are the Soviet city dwellers targeted? Just because.
0: I would come on to it, but to put it very, very bluntly, the German the German way of war and the German way of empire is to Germanize the East, to turn it into Lebensraum. And we have in Himmler where he calls General Plan Ost, General Plan East. Yep. It's, it's drafted over four different iterations. It never really comes to fruition, but it's a very good Picture of the model they had in mind. They weren't just attacking Russia to defeat it militarily. They were they were fighting the Soviet Union in order, if you like, to build an empire of blood and soil on the scorched earth of what had once been Bolshevik. Russia. This was going to be the German Empire. Lebensraum isn't just space to have farms
1: like the Canadian prairies. It's also clearing it out of anyone who's not not Aryan. Yes.
0: And as as the German historian Goethe Alley uh, puts it, when the Germans Germanized, they Germanized land, never people. So these people have to be removed, and it's not just a sad corollary of war that clearly there will be huge casualty rates. They have to go one way or the other, and the Germans are so explicit about it. They don't, unlike the Holocaust, they don't bother using any euphemisms for this. You know, in their famous uh, hunger meeting, you know, the the hunger plan. They call call it the hunger plan. We're going to starve them to death.
1: Yes, and they they estimate, you know, it's going to be twenty to thirty million. um,
0: Yeah, yeah, and 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 that's that's all baked into the figures. And the last, the last category, probably around a million, a million civilians, um, uh, including 185,000 uh, uh, in Warsaw after the ghetto is cleared. But 5.8 million, roughly 5.86 million European Jews. So it's really important to, 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 to establish that, that the, Jew, the, the European Jews are not the only category, um, but there is a difference. There is a difference, and it goes back to a point I tried to explore in the early part of the book, which is at the heart of, because Hitler is always a politician. He's obsessed with this word politics, and you're kind of, well, what on earth does he mean? politics? I mean, he doesn't mean party politics as we understand it. Um, What he means by politics is a way of uh, understanding, carving, and mastering the world. And I, the way my theory is that, that that there are two strains of politics that are are kind of given birth in the early years of the twentieth century, and they're, they're both the most vibrant and exciting ways of understanding how nations fight one another and how dominance and supremacy yep. are achieved one is biopolitics and the other is geopolitics yes. and they're both new ways of understanding how nations prevail in the world biopolitics is the study of what makes a nation strong all yep. the, all the countries in the west are are obsessed with you know do we have do we have the right manpower do we have the right you know, all those stories you hear of how shocked they are when they do conscription, they realise everyone's barrel-chested wheezing and too short. <laughs> so it's yeah. it's got to do with the idea of what kind of national stock do you have? How virile, how vibrant is your population? And geopolitics, as we know to this day, is the study of how nations uh, gain supremacy over one another. What combination of strategy, soft power, hard power, threat... And what's really interesting and ominous about this is, of all those categories of of targeted populations, some belong to the camp of their geopolitical enemies, like like the the, the Polish elite. Uh, we have to get if we're going to decimate and, and 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 dominate Poland, we need to get rid of the people who think they run Poland. And some are defined as biopolitical enemies. So the mentally and physically handicapped. Why are they? Why are they a problem? Well, because they're polluting the gene pool. They are a war against the future. Uh, but the Jews, I believe, are unique in that they're both um, German Nazi anti-Semitism pictures. The Jewish uh, uh, the Jewish conspiracy as being a combination of geopolitical threat. They are the hidden power that dominate how the world works. They dominate its economy. They dominate its yep. ideologies. They dominate uh, governments. So they are. Uh, 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 so the idea that they're the Untermensch is rubbish. The thing that makes the Jewish sort of chimera so terrifying to the Nazis that they're superior to them. That's why they're threatening, because they're better at it. But the, the other threat is a biopolitical one, and you have all that imagery like we described in the first podcast of, you have to issue a kind of trigger warning when you start using this language. But the Nazi use of language of vermin, of bacteria, of illness. Yeah, yeah. Hitler is an amazing moment. He says, I am the Wilhelm Koch of the New Germany. And Wilhelm Koch was the, was the great pioneer of um, anti, uh, bacteriology. He's the great scientist post-Lister who understands how you deal with infection and germs and uh, so you've got these two narratives going on. And the way that translates is that what the Jewish threat takes these two forms, which is this idea of ethnic pollution, but also geopolitical. It's the Jews who are boxing Germany in. That famous German yeah. paranoia that we've got the we've got f- France and Britain and America on one side, Russia on the other, endlessly in a vice like grip. Excuse- yes,
1: and, and this is this is part of the, the the geopolitical situation, isn't it? This is this is the yeah. geopolitics that they're talking about because of because of Germany being continental power, being landlocked without very much access to the world's oceans it's got that little strip of the baltic yes tiny little strip of the north sea but be that as may you know the, the north sea is dominated by the royal navy blah blah blah. so they yeah. feel incredibly hemmed in but yeah. but the other thing i think is 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 this the language they're using which you see regularly by people like himmler is you know this is our burden you know, this is a terrible thing that we've got to do. Obviously, it's going to be beastly having to kind of, you know, get rid of all these people and, and shoot all these people, and no one wants to do it. But this is the terrible burden that our generation has to do, so that in a thousand years, you know, we're pure and all our, you know, and it's just extraordinary. When I
0: was writing the book about my Nazi yeah. grandfather, that's the note I ended on, which was that he he as a member of the SS and in particular the SD, the Sicherheitsdienst. Yeah, I realized that what, one of his motivations was his gift to me as his yet unborn grandson. Would be a world which I wouldn't even know that there had been a Jewish question, never mind a final solution. Right. My, my greatest inheritance, his present to us, the next generation would we solved it all for you, so you don't need to, and you don't even need to know about it. But the, the, the psychology of that. Point you're making, about the burden is really interesting. You see it all the way through the Nazi discourse about what what it takes psychologically to, you know, as you started off, how do you perpetrate these things? They they always make a distinction. It's a very perverse one between satisfaction and gratification. So Himmler again and again and again says the German soldiers, it's one of the reasons he doesn't want them drunk, because one of the things when they're doing all the shooting, they you know, in order to do it, they, they, they there's a brilliant essay written about uh, the Nazi fire shooting squads and alcohol. They're, they're mm. sozzled out. Their brains, well, who wouldn't be? I mean, just to anesthetize no. your brain. And he Well, as they that. are
1: when they do the Argentina massacre in, in Rome yes, in March 1940. Yes. But
0: Himmler. And you sort of think, Himmler doesn't want it. And the normal explanation given is because Himmler is this strangely fastidious man who doesn't like alcohol. And the reason he doesn't like alcohol is he wants his German soldiers to take satisfaction from the historical necessity, the unfortunate burdensome necessity of what they're doing, but not gratification. So all the way through the SS discourse, if one German soldier so much as steals one mark, he will be shot. There's no gratification allowed. And you see that in the trials, you know, both Hearst's, And Eichmann, uh, Hurst, the Commandant of Auschwitz, Eichmann, the Heydrich's um, deputy, the, the architect of the final solution, in their respective trials the great pains they go to and it's bizarre to watch it is is they, they 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 none of them deny neither of them deny they did it in fact they take a kind of perverse pride at how well run auschwitz was how well run the transport plans were but the one thing they draw a line is i derive no satisfaction from it i i both of them become very melodramatic and sentimental i i was you know i would look at the, this young mother who was about to be killed and i felt sick thinking of my own children and you think it's this strange, this yes. strange dissociation. Well, and and because- Himmler
1: himself. I mean, one of the reasons they go down the down the the the, the road of, of of using gas is because Himmler himself is in Ukraine, isn't he? And um and and he witnesses um a, a large execution of people being shot and sort of kicked into a trench, uh, and and he goes, oh, that's horrible. But he's not worried about about the kind of trauma it's causing the the, the people, that the Jews, are being killed. He's worried about the trauma it's having on the people who are perpetrating
0: it. Well, more than trauma, he's worried it's brutalising them. He doesn't want them to be brutes because this is an expression of the higher German spirit. And there's that very, very creepy memo that he disseminates famously, which is he offers, as a solution... uh, an alternative to doing it drunk, which is the only way a lot of these people can do it, is to have what they call comrade evenings, where all the shooters will get together and there'll be a nice mix, a a mix around the table of ranks, so it doesn't split into cliques and there will be a a moderate drinking, but only in the spirit of toasting the the German spirit, and a couple of poems will be read, and it will give the the murderers, uh, the shooters, a chance to marinate in the higher German geist spirit, in the name of which all of this is being done. I mean, it's perverse. But to get back to... To get back to Barbarossa. The reason that Barbarossa is is so crucial to this story, um, and 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 I think we all know anyone who knows the, the sort of the general shape of World War II knows that once Hitler invades Russia, the war just changes completely.
1: Well, and he and he does that briefing, doesn't he, in March nineteen forty forty one, where where the plans are being drawn up, and he says, you know, I want you to know that you can use whatever measures you feel necessary. You know, this is an ideological war, he said.
0: Ideological war, and what he what he means what he means by that is is that the way I I try to explain it. For, for, for people not completely versed in the, new, the absolute minutiae of military history is it's, it's a combination of France and Poland writ large. So this is going to be military. It's going to take the, the, the lesson they think they've learned from France, which is they're unstoppable, and the lesson they think they've learned from Poland, which is the way to do war is the, the way I tried to describe it. It's like a combination of the Thirty Years' War, that terrible period in the seventeenth century when they reckon every second German civilian was killed. I mean, the, the most bloody. Yeah, yes, war in terms of, of, as
1: as a proportion of the population, it's it's the most brutal war ever. As a proportion of the population,
0: and and then Ludendorff's f- famous paper, which he, he wrote um, after the First World War, called Total War, and Lud- Odendorf, the great German general from World War One, writes his doctrine, and his doctrine of total war basically boils down to the people who win. Uh, the, the side that wins is the side that throws absolutely everything into fighting and can assemble what we would call full spectrum warfare. Um, No scruple, no restraint, no inhibition, nothing held back. And you put these two things together and you get, the way I try to explain it is you have to understand Barbarossa, I think a way to understand it is it's not one war, it's four wars. And what Hitler Hitler is doing in in the Soviet Union is uh, the four targets for destruction. Well, first of all, the Red Army and its air force, of course. Secondly, Bolshevism, the ideology that sustains it, and Stalin. Third, useless eaters. The millions and millions and millions of people who are consuming the resources that Germany thinks it needs. And the fourth are the Slavs.
1: In Germany, Nazi eyes not contributing.
0: No, no, and, and and Slavic civilization. But there is one population that, that in Nazi eyes belongs to all four categories, and that's the Jews. They're down four times. You know, they, they're considered weirdly to. Be overrepresented in the senior echelons of, of the Soviet military-political world. They are uh, uh, the absolute architects of Bolshevism. They are the most useless eaters of all, and they are uh, a racial enemy as Judeo-Bolsheviks. They're far more dangerous to the Nazi worldview than Polish Jews, who are, you know, living in their shtetls, are no threat to anyone. But Jewish Bolshevism.
1: But but but, but do you do you think they've sort of they've worked themselves up into a lava over this? Do you think they really believe it, or do you think that is that? Adding that extra layer is just, you know, it's just... They absolutely
0: believe it in the same way they believe themselves to be Nazis. When I mean, what's a Nazi? A Nazi is somebody who has a national socialist worldview. There's nothing convenient about this conspiracy theory. They really, really believe it. Um, and uh, as I said at the end of the last podcast, it's very interesting. It's 1941, 42, that in America, in order to unalienate the Jewish population yes, in yes, America, yes. they invent the phrase Judeo-Christian. So yep. we we, we judeo a way of double alienating. You know, right. not only are they Bolsheviks, which are, you know, godless. Uh, uh, they stand inimical to every Western D- German value, the, the human value, and secondly, yep. they're Jewish. So uh, uh, you know, they're, biologically, they're anathema. Because the way I look at it too is, that, is that what, what's going through Hitler's mind in sort of spring, you know, spring '41 is. There are two world capitals left un- undefeated. There's London to the west.
1: Before we get, get on to London, let, let's just take a very quick break and let's get on to kind of the, the, the role of London in, in Hitler's mind when we return. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland, and with Martin Davidson, and we're getting to the the, the horrific nitty gritty of the Holocaust. And just before the break, Martin, you were you you were introducing the concept of of London and how Hitler views. London and Britain.
0: It, j- it just seemed to me that, that that what's going through Hitler's mind after the after the, the triumph of France and the triumph. I mean, I I, I know if you read Roger Moorhouse's brilliant book on on the German invasion of Poland that 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 it isn't nearly the clean route that you think it is. I mean, G- the G- Germans already start to experience some of the problems that are going to flit in the later and just choose to ignore it. But nevertheless, France and Poland each have fallen in a matter of weeks, and there's Hitler suddenly with Europe at his feet. And in a way that I don't think even he expected. And so there then remains, well, the the big decision would be just consolidate. Or he is taunted, I think, by the two world capitals that remain out of his grasp, undefeated. There's London to the west and Moscow to the east, and each are global gateways.
1: There's no question that in the rhetoric, you know, it's all about England, 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 our most dangerous enemy, England. Yes. You know, obviously, he means Britain, but 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 that's what yeah. he talks about. You know, that all the rhetoric is about the threat that Britain, British Empire, poses to Germany and the smooth passage to doing what it wants. And what it yeah. really, what you know, what what they want to do is obviously is, is is knock Britain out of the war so that they can then turn on the Eastern Front. You know, that's yes. the long term plan it becomes a shorter term plan when britain doesn't play ball and survives the battle of britain
0: yes and and, and um, it's really interesting um, my my nazi grandfather when 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 i uh, two three times when i met him i remember he was obsessed by churchill you would always talk about Churchill, never Stalin. And, and Churchill said, yeah, 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 Martin, Martin, we, you know, we too, we were just like Churchill. We too wanted an empire. Now, of course, that's a post war, post retcon rationalization. But, but the, you know, there's no question that the English uh, obsessed uh, uh, Hitler. But I, the way I look at it is, So, so England is not invaded. It can't crack the nut. The English channel has just made it impossible and uh, the Luftwaffe has not delivered what it thought it could and invasion is off. So this sort of bizarre, hubristic decision, which in retrospect seems so utterly, obviously suicidal. The invasion of Soviet actually makes huge sense to a a megalomaniac like Hitler. It's because I think it it offers short-term medium-term and long-term advantages. And the short-term is the most p- p- paradoxical of all, which is it gets Britain out of the war As soon as the, all the German generals agree, the w- best way to, to defeat London is to conquer Moscow, because once Moscow has gone, there is no continental ally for the British. And, you know, the drunken blowhard that is Churchill, he will just, at that point, even he will have to realize the writings on the wall. The medium term, and I know you've been brilliant on this. I know you've talked a lot about this, and I take my inspiration from from the way you've described this, but I completely believe your point is right, that, of course, the big medium term gain that the Soviet Union offers is resources. And, you know, you've talked so eloquently about how Germany is a resource-poor country. Um, But the really interesting thing about what resources are we talking about, and, again, it was actually a point you made in in an interview uh, you did for me for a series I did for ZDF, and you said the really interesting thing to understand about food is it's a type of energy, and I thought, you know, what? Well, that's really clever. And so, as are, so the, the what I call the wars behind the war, and so you know, they're all energy wars, it's, it's food, in other words, calories for your, your workers, it's also slave labor, muscle for the factories, and then it's oil. So uh, oil and, and uh, 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 you know, the, the thing without which the, the the great war machine grinds to hold.
1: The Second World War falls in this moment of transition where we're transitioning from coal to oil. Yes. And, and, and you know, the British Empire has been made the British Empire on the back of coal, coal power, steam, um, coal energy, you know, whether it be steamships, whether it be railways, locomotives, whatever, whether it be traction engines, you know, rolling a road. It, it's all coal power, whereas we're transitioning to oil yeah you know, the automobile yes. and and the internal combustion engine and all the rest of it and and the second world war lies on that fault line where where you're you're transitioning from one to the other yes and germany has lots of coal but it doesn't have lots of oil I mean the, the the point about about the oil the the, the need for not for just for Lieben's but for reaching the Caucasus for getting tobacco to Baku to Azerbaijan and get to those oil fields is that it's completely bonkers because they're never ever going to be able to get their hands on it until the Soviet Union is completely defeated and the idea that the Soviets are going to are going to just let hand it over in defeat is 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 well, absurd. Course. Yes,
0: yes, it's absurd. I, I love the statistic uh, the that um, um, in 1942 uh, uh, a. British Britain had 600 oil tankers and Germany had 33. Um, and also what
1: the Germans... Oh no, yes, in 1943, in- you know, de- Britain's domestic use is something like 24 million litres of, of oil domestically. Right. Whereas German, Nazi Germany's entire use is four and a half. Extraordinary,
0: absolutely extraordinary, and I think then the third long term aim, which is what makes the Soviet attack irresistible to Hitler, is he will invade the Soviet Union, he'll conquer it, he'll colonize it, and then lastly he'll Germanize it. And to, he, Germanize means to to, to Nazify it, and that means so if 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 Barbarossa is going to be France writ large, what they do with Russia is going to be Poland writ large, yes. and once that's done, uh, what he will have is his, his the great vision that what Germany wants to do is have a military. Security for all eternity. It's about never ever being vulnerable again to the circumstances that they have construed as being the reason for defeat in 1918. And they will be a global power. And they will own the 20th century the way that Britain did the 19th and France the 18th, and Dutch and Spanish and the Portuguese before them. They will, and it was it's so Laban's realm, living room, elbow space, will become what they call Weltherrschaft, world power status. Um, so in three in three bites they will have achieved what the whole of World War II was about. So, but of course, as you've, you you and, and Al have explained, they have to do it fast. They have to do it really fast,
1: so, and they have to have a plan in place to get rid of all these people that they don't want. Yes, um, which is yes. where the Einstein's group would come in, isn't it? This is part of the of the Barbarossa plan.
0: But but you know the brilliant the brilliant conversation that you had with David Starhall, who is the historian of of of, of the way in which the German armed Effort. The wheels just fell off in the most extraordinary way. In the way I you know, th- this is an attack. You cannot believe how many questions this attack begged.
1: And how many aren't answered before they start?
0: No, they, it's like they're invading the dark side of the moon. And, and, and Ben Shepard uh, does a brilliant uh, uh, analysis of entire intelligence uh, uh, um, and background to what they thought they knew about the Soviet Union it came from an office of seven people just outside Paris. So the, the two things that obsessed the Germans in their invasion of, of, of the Soviet Union well, one, who they were going to kill in order to, to do it. Hence all the, the terrible meetings of the generals and the, the commissar order, and the this is going to be a war of ideology, all of that stuff. They're obsessed by that. And the second thing they're obsessed by, Hitler in particular, is what they're going to do with it once they've won it. So as I say in the book, it's, 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 it's like William the Conqueror wrote the Doomsday book before the boats even landed on the south coast. He's fantasizing, bloviating for hours about this empire of these, these Germanic folkish farms with the three-lane autobahns. It's almost the actual war bit. The, the invasion and conquering bit is a game. It's, it's a foregone conclusion.
1: Yeah, that, that is absolutely the tone, isn't it? it, 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 it this, is, this is a given that we're going to be victorious. Yes. Uh, um, so therefore, we've we've already got to f- think ahead, start planning for how how it's going to look once we're there. How we're we going to do this, Leopold's room.
0: Yes, hence the nonsense of Himmler and his, what he called his General Plan Ost, this General Plan East, where they play, it's like a kind of perverted form of Sim City. So he gets this man called Konrad Meyer, who's a town planner at University, uh, in Berlin, and, and they start designing what's our empire going to look like. And it's, it's though it's completely tabula rasa. It's virgins on. We can, we can project any fantasy we like now. But of course, crucial to that is, well, what are they going to do about the Jews? What are they going to do about the Jews? So they've got this, they they, they have 2 million, of uh, growing to nearly 3 million in Poland. Um, and the answer there is a stock gap, because they haven't thought it through. It's always about stock gaps, and that's ghettos. We'll just brick them up uh, into these ghettos, uh, uh, crush everyone there, and we'll get back, to, we'll kick the can down the road and we'll get back to it. And in, in uh, the we'll meantime-
1: also do lots of killing while we're about it as well. Yes, I mean, it's not course. just ghettos. And-
0: but when it starts, let's just brick them up, and we'll we'll get back to that. Let's just leave that. In the Soviet Union, their stopgap solution is going to be shooting, so they're not. Going, they do build some ghettos, uh, Minsk and Kaunas. There, there are. It's not that they don't, but that's not the principle. The principle methodology in dealing with the with the the, the Jewish question in the occupied East is going to be shooting, and it starts off. And they, they really take a long run up to this. I mean, Heydrich and his Einsatzgruppen, the Einsatzgruppen have existed before. They, they were in Poland, they, they even pre-existed. But this time they really, they really get their head round the role that they're going to play. Um, and what you what you what you discover is uh, so in June and July, um, um the first couple of months, uh, 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 most of the shooting is men of fighting age. But by the end of July and August, it's explicitly expanded to include women and children. And this is Himmler and Heydrich touring the Eastern front, goading and pushing and move, 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 galvanizing, always always push more, 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 more. And, and, and by this point, as Jürgen Matthäus, brilliant German historian of the Holocaust says, the question is not, why should we kill the Jews? The question is, why shouldn't we? Why should we not? So the default, there is no solution to the Jewish question after Barbarossa that if it doesn't include killing or death in some way, it's not complete, and the way I try to try to describe it is: what happens is, of course, the Einsatzgruppen. There's only three thousand of them. They need a force multiplier. How on earth can three thousand very motivated killers? And if you look, there are three. I think there are roughly three answers that that, that that overlap. So in the Baltics, which are considered ethnically close enough to Germany to be to be reliable, they use what they just use local Get the locals to do it. Um, yeah. And as we see, they jumped as they did in the Balkans. Um, and and you have these appalling photographs of people being clubbed to death in front of a garage forecourt, um, um, uh, various Latvian commandos. Who, and the great film, Come and See, mm. the, the great Russian 1985 film about the Eastern Front, uh, people being burned alive in barns. That is an SS. That is that is a speciality of these Einsatzgruppen. So, so you use locals. That's answer one. In Belarus, which is the main army group centre, that's the direct route to Moscow through Minsk, well, Belarus isn't. It doesn't work for that. The countryside's too dispersed, too many forests, too many swamps. So what you do there is you uh, you whip up the whole uh, partisan. They're partisans, and you get the army to do it. And the very, it's a perfect moral fig leaf. The people you're shooting, you know, one shot from a village, and the, 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 the institute two measures. No German soldier will ever be prosecuted for any. There is no such thing as a war crime. You're completely immune. And the second is. In, in, in anything counts as justifying reprisal. You don't. You don't have. There's no. You know. You, just imagine a shot. So e- even enough.
1: even a twelve year old girl is is a partisan. Yes.
0: So 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 they've learned that. And then the third sort of lesson they learn is in in Ukraine. Um. And 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 what happens in Ukraine is the army the uh, army and the Einsatz Group and set themselves the challenge of oh, okay, just how many people can we actually kill. And we discover at Babi Yar, um, on the outskirts of Kiev. Um, well, it's, it's 35,000 in two days. And 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 you do that with what Friedrich Jekyll, the, the mastermind of that, calls again black humour. It's it's a story dripping with German gallows humour. He calls it sardining. We dig a hole, and it's how what is the maximum number of bodies you can put into one hole, like a sardine tin. And this is the where they do they don't shoot people on the edge of the pit and the fall in. You you they line people lying across the bottom, shoot them, and then they have what they call pickers, locals who jump on them like they're pressing wine grapes and then the next row and he's laughing he thinks it's oh, well we've you know there's no limit so if you take the three lessons that the, the three learning curves of the Einsatzgruppen they're well on their way to killing uh I mean what some estimates of Ukraine 1.2 1.5 million I mean these these numbers are absolutely astonishing so I think one has to be slightly careful of uh, the idea that uh, when that story in Minsk when Himmler famously sees an execution gets brained on a uniform and is apparently appalled up to a point, the shooting carries on forever. It never stops and the scale it achieves is absolutely gargantuan. Um, And and, and there's this weird weird moment when, again, as a a corollary of the German soldiers realizing that they're performing a heroic sacred duty, that Richard Overy describes this. Um, uh, 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 There's a memo which is, it is considered a kindness to shoot a mother and her child together because we're all three of us involved in this historical drama, this historic drama that's happening of vast historical necessity. And you have that famous infamous photograph of the German soldier with his rifle and the mother turned with her back, turned to the rifle with a child, cradling a child. And this is considered a kindness. So if you take the three, self-cleansing in the Baltic states, uh, the partisan fig leaf in Belarus and sardining in Ukraine, you have a, what they call the Holocaust by bullets. And this is when the Holocaust starts. This is long before the gas camps, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. the bagasse chambers and the trains. The final killing bit, uh, uh, to, total for for, for for the Holocaust, no one will ever know. But it's it's not less than, I mean, it's 2 million. I mean, it's, it's between a third maybe even a half of those of those murdered I mean it's it's astonishing now the next part of the story that's really fascinating is it, at the moment what everything about Barbarossa is is, is megalomania and hubris but this is the last moment where the Germans still think they're in charge of the tempo. The, the, the whole operation of Barbarossa is a test only of themselves. Hence all of those speeches that the generals give, you know, putting metal in, in, in the German soldiers, you know, throw away all restraint. All, all sense of shared humanity is gone, gone, gone. Um, and we have to get this done in six months. Uh, you know, they know or, or, or you cannot fight a war war of attrition. But I was really taken by what happens on June the 22nd, 1941, within, within hours of Barbarossa happening. And I think it's, it's, it's a famous speech. I'm not saying I've uh, discovered it, but I don't know if people have attributed the, the enough weight to it, which is Churchill. So Churchill gives this famous speech uh, on the eve of Barbarossa. And it's Churchill at his most gloriously intemperate. This hideous Hun crushing villages, these inhuman monsters. But he has this incredible phrase in about the third or fourth paragraph where he talks about this is the fourth climacteric. And climacteric is an old Greek word, and it means watershed. This is a change state. This is a quantum leap. And and he says the first one was the invasion of Poland. The second climacteric was the fall of France. The third was the Americans doing Lend-Lease. And the fourth is now upon us. So he understands that the war has changed out of, not just in, in degree, but in kind. This is now a war like no other. And as a sidebar, I do find really interesting the way that the, the World War II is so much more personalized, given how much more industrial and huge it is than World War I. It is the war of Hitler and Stalin and Roosevelt and Churchill in a way First World War isn't, it's bizarre. And all of them think they're agents of history and all of them talk like that. I mean, Hitler Hitler considers history to be simply an extension of his own will. Churchill considers history to be this extraordinary narrative of which he's the one weaving the next chapter in this incredible narrative. And what, what, uh, uh, as David Reynolds, the great uh, uh, historian of international relations leading into the war described, Churchill's job, he was, I will give the British people a history lesson. That's my job. I need to explain to you where we are. Now, what's really interesting about that, of course, that speech is addressed to Stalin. And three weeks later, they're signing the Anglo-Soviet pact in, in, in Moscow and London, because obviously Churchill goes, I need, I need the alliance. The one thing, the invasion of Russia was supposed to stop. And three weeks later, they have the pact. And as the Pathé Newsreel of the time wryly observes, the pact is being signed in the same room that the Ribbentrop pact was signed in. But anyway, needs must In the middle of August, famously, what does Churchill do? He's on it, he's on the Prince of Wales, sailing to Newfoundland to meet Roosevelt, to stitch up the global coalition. Now, what's interesting about that is what happens, and what's this got to do with the Holocaust, you might ask? Well, it's crucial to the Holocaust because in Hitler's mind, two things are happening at the end of August, beginning of September, it's unraveling. You know, you you've got Goebbels in his diary saying this is no Kate Walk, this is G-, you know, all the generals going,
1: Christ Barbarossa is designed to to bring them complete victory. And it doesn't. The, the, the very fact that they're having to organize second op- secondary operations, you know, launching at the end of September tells you that 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 the Barbarossa has failed.
0: Yeah. At the very moment, at the end of the middle of August, August the 14th, the Atlantic Charter is published, and that's the famous document. So Roosevelt will not join the war. He will, he will, he will subscribe to Churchill's war aims, but he won't, he won't declare war. That, that, that's a step too far at that point. But the the, the famous eight, par- I think it's eight paragraphs. You know, the sort of the world will be free. Blah, blah, you know, very high, highfalutin, very idealistic. But the paragraph six is the crucial one because it talks after the defeat of the Nazi tyranny, the world will. And Goebbels records how on August the fifteenth or sixteenth, when the Germans get a copy of it. Hitler is so apoplectic. Why is he apoplectic? Because two things. One is what the Atlantic Charter has done is they've removed Hitler from the story. This is gone. We're we're literally talking about a world where Nazism no longer exists.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Hitler's so this, job. That's, yeah, right.
0: Hitler is the person who envisions a world after the war, and he's yeah. been he's been he's been rendered irrelevant.
1: That's so fascinating. But the
0: second thing, the second thing that happens is this is the confirmation of growing fear and panic and paranoia in Hitler's mind as as stu- Barbarossa it's like Zeno's paradox, you know, the famous paradox that the closer yeah. to a target you get, the fir- you, you never get there. You yeah. never get there, and 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 this sort of weird stalled momentum. If I'm correct, by sort of middle of August they've reached the 500 miles, which is the limit of their supply lines, and it's all starting to go pear shaped. So August, and what happens in Hitler's mind? is Because why, in what world, do Soviet Bolsheviks, British imperialists, and American plutocrats? Combine. And he goes, it's world jury. And what happens at that point is is this kind of parody, this to him is proof.
1: This is absolutely, it, isn't it? This is, and this you made brilliantly. Yeah. yeah, ever a proof was needed for this 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 global plot yes. that I've been talking about ever since since nineteen nineteen.
0: Yeah. And the crucial signifier is a whole campaign. As a man called Jeffrey Hurf, who's written a brilliant book about Jewish anti-Jewish propaganda, in Nazi Germany. And he shows how through July, August, September, October in Germany, the whole visual language of of anti-Semitism in Nazi Germany changes. And it's no longer rats and, and basilis and 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 right. um, sort of disgustingness. It's spiders webs octopuses tentacles right, right, and right. its its jewish people grinning behind the curtain particularly with fdr because famously, he is—he he allowed himself to be photographed in a Freemason's uniform, and Goebbels seizes on that as the final proof. And they—they—they have—they they have, they have a, a, a there's a sort of spurious pamphlet that that that, that Roosevelt is believed to have, have been responsible for, which is talking about Germany will be annihilated. So, what's the first thing that Hitler does in in August and September? So this whole his his has proved to him that the 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 global the sort of meta. Jewish conspiracy, not just shtetls in the East, is real. So this coalition is started and they're losing initiative. The war is slipping through their fingers. You imagine the paranoia. And what's the first thing he then does? He goes, right, there is a Jewish population closest to home, which are going to have to pay the price because this is... And who are these Jews who are neither being shot and they're not even in ghettos? Germany's Jews. The 185,000 or so who didn't escape are still left there. And what does he do in September? Yellow Star. And then in the beginning of October, the first deportations, because from now on the default for any European Jew is the East. They're going to the East and their comfortable existence, breathing German air, because Heydrich has officially forbidden the building of ghettos in Germany because he doesn't want Jewish power concentrated. Um, And the Germans, the senior Nazis, the the ideological nightmare people, this is unforgivable. We're we're ghettoizing and shooting them in the East. And and all we're doing uh, to our Germans is sort of, you know, endless legislation. They're not allowed to own pets. They're not allowed to buy flowers. They're not allowed to sit on park benches, but they're still wandering around among us.
1: Yes, breathing German air and uh, and all the rest of it.
0: Yeah, and at that point I I I so this is how Barbarossa, when it starts to unravel and the shooting is you know, they're shooting and shooting and shooting So and the and Holocaust comes, accelerates. Yes, and uh, you get a kind of chorus. Mark Mazawa is very good on this. Sort of between August and December, Pearl Harbor, in that period you get this what I call a Greek chorus, a howl around of senior Nazis, all repeating the exact terms of Hitler's prophecy. They're all they're all they're all raging each other up to be you know, more and more and more committed. And then Pearl Harbor happens. And at that point, I think a moment of clarity happens in the Germans. They go, right, the whole world is on fire. So be it. Um, all, all inhibitions have now gone. All, all thinking about geopolitics strategizing and uh, wire pulling, it's all gone. This is all at war. And then uh, 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 you know, at the end of January, you've got the Wunze Conference, which, I think the important thing to understand about the Wannsee Conference, we all—I'm sure a lot of us have seen the dramatic reconstructions of it. This ninety-minute, yeah, yeah, I call yeah. the most infamous, the most infamous working lunch in history, where yes. these 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 German uh, uh, functionaries and apparatchiks meet, and they spend an hour and a half banging out what form a final solution mere, A take.
1: mere ninety minutes.
0: A mere ninety minutes. But the, the, but the thing that the, the impression that the drama gives, I think, is wrong. Which is often thought, oh, this is the starting gun. It isn't. This is a this is a middle stage. It's a taking stock. It's that classic business meeting where we go right. What we what, when I when I worked in in, in big businesses, uh, we used to call swap a swap meeting. Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and problems. It's a business cycle. Yeah,
1: what, yeah, yeah.
0: What, where, where do we want to go? How are we going to get there? Um, and I mean that that, that to me is the scene setter, and it's no coincidence that March nineteen forty two, two months after the you have a huge departure in the story of the Holocaust, which is, of course, after the Wannsee Conference, nothing happens. And the reason for that is the Sicherheitsdienst have nothing more to contribute. Heydrich and the SD, because they're shooting these, but they can't deal with the Poles. They can't deal with the ghettos. And that's the moment when Himmler goes, I need a different part of the SS empire to solve Poland. And I'm going to get the T4 people, the gassing people. And that's the moment when the camps join up the other great Nazi institution, the sanatorium, the gas chamber sanatorium, and the camp. And that's as Nicholas wachsman brilliantly describes in his book, that his kid said, this is the moment, the first moment when the camp system has finds itself having a role to play in the Holocaust. And then we know what happens then. It's the death, the three first death camps, uh Belchek, Zobibor, Treblinka, and then the big story, 1943 onwards, where it really takes off is the three camps of Auschwitz. Birkenau, the corpse machine, Auschwitz one where the prisoners are, and the third camp, Monowitz, which is the Ige-Farben. What is it, this, as Adam too says, the single largest economic investment of the entire Nazi Third Reich is the, and what are they doing? Turning oil, uh, coal into oil and synthetic rubber, that thing that we described right at the beginning of this talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah which
1: absolutely. Was well martin it's it's all uh grimly fascinating um thank you so much for that um we need a third third episode on this because we haven't got to the end of this this awful story but but the good news is there is an end um and so so let's continue this conversation um in a little while and bring it to its terrible conclusion but in the meantime, Martin, thank you so much it it is it is grim it's a terrible story, but it is absolutely fascinating and i think it's a really important story too i think we you know we have to we have to understand it you know your work it's why world war ii matters in the end it's why world war ii matters anyway thank you all very much for listening and um i'll be back with martin very soon cheerio for now